Hi, Fresh Ed listeners. It's Will here. As we begin the year, I wanted to take a moment to ask for your help. As you know, every episode on Fresh Ed has always been free. We never advertise, and we don't believe in paywalls. That's our ethos, and we want to keep it that way. At first, we were entirely self-funded. Now Fresh Ed is run on a shoestring budget. And that shoestring just got shorter. We need your help to get us through these challenging times. Our episodes are used in courses at universities such as Berkeley, Edinburgh, Harvard, Hawaii, Hong Kong, Humboldt, Sydney, UPenn, and many others. And they don't cost a thing. We're also on the biggest podcast platforms in China and the Middle East and North African region. Many of our episodes have been translated into Mandarin, French, Arabic, and Portuguese. And we support graduate students from around the world to produce episodes based on their research. But it doesn't stop there. We have plans to sponsor more graduate students and start spin-off podcasts in other languages. But to do this, we need your help. We rarely ask for money from you, but we are now asking our listening community to support us. I'll be honest, we're facing an unexpected budget gap of about $25,000. So we need your help to keep Fresh Ed free for everyone. To break it down, if you and another 249 generous listeners each gave $100, we would reach our goal for the year. Whether you're a longtime listener or if you've just found us, if you value Fresh Ed and have the means to do so, please go to freshedpodcast.com slash donate and make a contribution. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thank you. And now on with the show. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Vietnam has been heralded as an education superstar. In just a few years, it both increased access to education and improved student learning outcomes. So what explains Vietnam's success? And can other countries learn anything from the Vietnam experience? The fact that Vietnam is a society that has a history of veneration for education, the fact that it is a country that struggled for its independence against a brutal and very exclusionary variety of French colonialism that did not uh, make education available, the fact that the Communist Party has always put at the center of its platform expanding education uh, for all people. You know, these are vitally important aspects of Vietnam's history, of Vietnam's political culture, and even of Vietnam's education culture. My guest today is Jonathan London, Associate Professor of Global Political Economy at Leiden University. He has a new working paper for RISE, which stands for Research on Improving Systems of Education, entitled Outlier Vietnam and the Problem of Embeddedness, Contributions to the Critique of the Political Economy of Learning. In our conversation today, he details the history of Vietnam, its system of decentralization, and the process of household co-payments to education. Jonathan London, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. So Vietnam was called a star performer in the 2016 PISA test. Can you briefly explain why Vietnam is considered sort of an outlier in the education results from the OECD? Well, there's two answers to that question, and they're both interesting. One is, 
can be answered in that Vietnam has performed much better than all other countries uh, in its income group. So it's uh, gotten education results that uh, simply far outperform other uh, middle-income countries and low-income countries. And no other country in the world has achieved such strong measured learning outcomes at those levels of income. In fact, Vietnam's uh, results in the assessment are higher than, in some areas, than countries such as the United States or the UK. Uh, but the other more interesting question, which is exactly, or equally interesting question, which is exactly what this uh, paper that I've written is about, is indeed why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How did Vietnam uh, achieve these results? What did Vietnam do? And so, you know, on the one hand, the backdrop of this paper is Vietnam's very impressive results in these international assessments of learning. Uh, but then the real question of interest is, well, what's going on here? So what is going on? I mean, does is Vietnam special in, you know, like in what ways is Vietnam special to become an outlier and become unique when it comes to learning outcomes? Well, Vietnam is special in a lot of ways. And I think we can agree that all all countries are special and all countries are unique. And so precisely... You know, the challenge is to sort of understand what features of Vietnam as a country, what features of its politics, of its system of public governance, even of its culture, um, can explain these uh, learning outcomes. And then the other question, of course, is, you know, what, if anything, states and other stakeholders in other countries uh, can learn from Vietnam's experience. So let's take the first question and, and think about some of these features, right? What, what sort of features can you point to that might be part of the explanation as to why Vietnam did so well? Well, I think there's a lot going on and those familiar with you know, comparative education, you know, one of the perhaps first things that people might say is, well, you know, look at where Vietnam is. Vietnam is in East Asia. And you have these, you know, countries with histories of venerating education, and you have relatively, you know, strong public bureaucracies. Uh, and indeed, if you look, for example, for previous outliers, that is countries that did particularly well, uh, say, for example, you know, Korea, uh, which is an exceptional performer in education, there are some shared, you know, cultural attributes. But that doesn't particularly help us to explain why, for example, Vietnam is doing better today than it was in the past, um, or a host of other aspects of Vietnam's performance. So one of the things that I try to do is, while not dismissing the significance of uh, culture per se, is to consider uh, other factors. And I'm particularly interested in exploring features of Vietnam's politics, its political system, because this, as uh, I'll say more about, is a very striking feature of social life in Vietnam. So for listeners who don't necessarily know too much about the Vietnamese political system, how would you describe it? Well, of course, uh, you know, Vietnam is ruled by the Communist Party, 
and the Communist Party of Vietnam has been around almost a century, but it was in 1954 that it achieved its uh, ultimate defeat of, of French attempts to regain its colonial domination. Vietnam declared independence, of course, in 1945 after a lengthy anti-colonial struggle. And the Communist Party tried to build uh, a state socialist sort of uh, society in the north of the country between 1954 and 1975 while waging, of course, a major war. Uh, and then after 1975, tried to extend that system. So since 1975, Vietnam has been under the unified uh, rule of the Communist Party. And the Communist Party is quite simply a dominant organization that shapes all aspects of social life and uh, interpenetrates the bureaucracy at all levels and uh, has a membership of four to five million party members who are very active, not only in places of, of work and in the government, but also in communities and, of course, throughout the education system. So how does it fit into the education system? Well, I'll say a bit more about that, but what I can say is something that's commonly observed with respect to countries such as Vietnam and China and other uh, countries with strongly uh, authoritarian political systems is that, you know, in all countries, education systems, of course, play a vitally important socialization role, transmitting dominant values and norms and things of this nature. But this is especially pronounced um, in countries, you know, such as Vietnam and China, where promoting culture of uh, political conformity is, is such a vitally important uh, aspect of the education system's mission. And so, you know, part of what's happening in all education systems everywhere are that, you know, dominant forces in society are transmitting norms and things of this nature. But in countries like China and Vietnam, for example, this is an especially salient feature and a really important impetus uh, for expanding the education system. So I'll, I'll have much more to say about Vietnam's politics, but it's important to recognize that although the Communist Party doesn't explain everything about Vietnam, it is a central feature of social life and indeed of the education system. You know, for an everyday student, for instance, what would that mean? You know, what would it mean to go to school and be embedded within this sort of, you know, larger communist organization that is impacting all features of life, and how might political conformity, you know, be experienced by children going to school? Well, the first thing that a child will do on a daily basis is put on their red scarf, which is, uh, you don't want to call it a collar, but, uh, you know, a, a, a red scarf, and it's, uh, of course, a powerful political symbol, and so you are entering into um, that kind of uh, organizational setting. Uh, but you'll be, you know, attending a school, and, you know, the vast majority of schools in uh, primary and secondary education are, of course, um, run, in fact, all primary schools are run uh, by the state. Most principals will be members of the party, as will, you know, uh, many teachers as well. So, you know, schools are educational institutions, but they are also part of a larger political uh, institution. And, you know, as we'll see, this actually brings certain advantages. So there are, uh, of course, these, you know, strange aspects 
about, you know, political indoctrination and things of this nature. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, these, you know, and without romanticizing how integrated the system is, it is nonetheless the case that Vietnam's education system is thoroughly integrated and in a sense hardwired uh, with this perpetual political process, which is the Communist Party of Vietnam, which is always an active organization. It's in motion. And as I'll, I'll talk more about a bit later, uh, this does have quite, you know, practical implications and indeed, you know, uh, confers the education system in Vietnam uh, with certain capabilities and certain uh, elements that are absent in a lot of other countries with similar income levels. So the fact that Vietnam is a society that has a history of veneration for education, the fact that it is a country that struggled for its independence against a brutal and very exclusionary variety of French colonialism that did not uh, make education available, the fact that the Communist Party has always put at the center of its platform expanding education uh, for all people, you know, these are vitally important aspects of Vietnam's history, of Vietnam's political culture, and even of Vietnam's education culture. Now, there are a lot of questions to be asked about the content of education, uh, but what I will tell you straight away is that these aspects of Vietnam give the country's education system a, a sort of patriotic zeal that I think is probably uh, pretty remarkable uh, in in world terms. And how then does these different features, you know, so it creates a patriotic zeal, but how does that translate into sort of quality, right? C increasing the quality of education and then potentially that that quality is being measured in terms of, you know, learning outcomes and those have an increase perhaps to a greater extent than other comparable countries. So how does it actually play out then? Well, I think there's a few things uh, going on here. One of the things that is going on is that the Communist Party has made a real ideological commitment uh, and indeed a political commitment. It's not simply rhetoric uh, to expanding education. And so over you know the last 20 or 30 years, uh, there's been quite a lot of progress in expanding education. And this is reflected in Vietnam's very high levels of enrollment, uh, net enrollment even. You know, at the primary level, it's you know nearly universal. Lower secondary education, there's been a lot of gains in expanding uh, enrollment. And, you know, the Communist Party also devotes about 20% of its annual budget uh, to education. Now, there are really important questions such as, where does that money go? And there are not readily available <laughs> answers to those questions. So there are some issues there. Uh, but Vietnam does spend uh, a higher share of its GDP, even compared to other countries in Southeast Asia, on its education system. With respect to quality, you know, it's one thing to get kids into school and another thing to actually get them learning. And the whole impetus for this, you know, Global RISE program, Research on Improving Systems of Education, of uh, which I am presently involved uh, working on Vietnam, is precisely, you know, this gap between, on the one hand, great gains in getting more kids into school, and on the other hand, in most countries, not really seeing a lot of improvement in learning. And so, you know, Vietnam is unusual in that it has both expanded, you know, access to education and also has these very impressive learning outcomes. So, so part of what's going on is that not only is the government gotten more kids into school, but the quality of education that is being offered, comparatively speaking, compared to other countries at Vietnam's income level, uh, is, is impressive. 
Now, there are a whole bunch of quality issues in Vietnam, and there are questions about which students' learning is being assessed. And there are also, you know, variation in the quality of education across regions, across urban and rural, even within localities and even within public schools. And I'll say a bit more about that later as well, you know, is that these quality concerns, which of course, you know, are, are concerns in, in all countries, are complex in the Vietnam context. But, you know, in general, the education system does comparatively better than most in the world at that income level in getting kids to school and getting them to learn. And part of it is the not only the you know rhetorical political commitment, but the political will that has been exhibited in Vietnam over two or three decades. In your new working paper for RISE, you bring up this idea of, you know, in Vietnam, there's a very high level of decentralization in the school system, which is perhaps on the surface a bit strange given the centralization of the Communist Party. So, you know, how does decentralization and issues of accountability fit into this picture of trying to understand the quality of education that the Vietnam system has been able to produce in the last few years? It's a really interesting mix of phenomena that we observe in Vietnam, because on the one hand, and I think this is a really important point to make, and indeed does reflect uh, certain socialist aspects of Vietnam's politics, is that the country is ruled by a state with a commitment to redistributive fiscal policy, to spreading the wealth. And so there's only about 10 of 63 provinces in Vietnam that have significant surpluses and some of them, such as, you know, uh, you know, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, the Hanoi area, you know, these are massive contributors to the central budget and that those resources are redistributed um, across provinces. So that's been a very significant element in the Communist Party's ability to expand education across provinces. At the same time, particularly over the last 20 years or so, uh, there has been a movement toward decentralization, as we see in so many countries. And, you know, on the one hand, this is driven, at least, you know, for those who are sort of romantic economists by the idea that, you know, local actors have a better sense of what's needed and can therefore more efficiently allocate resources. But as we observe in a lot of countries very frequently, it's about political expediency and it's about, you know, politicians at the central level winning political support by conferring greater authority and discretion to local folks. Of course, having local people make decisions can generate a lot of benefits. I don't want to categorically dismiss the possibility that decentralization can be helpful. Uh, but in the Vietnam context, what this has done is given provinces more discretion over how they allocate resources for education. And what we have you know, observed in Vietnam on the one hand is the presence of norms central budgeting norms so that provinces are expected to allocate 20% or whatever uh, on education. But then beyond that, what we see is, you know, strikingly uh, absent uh, norms regarding, you know, what provinces, not even how they're supposed to allocate resources, but what they can and cannot do. And so things be begin to be quite interesting here because there are a set of political resolutions at the level of the Central Communist Party about what the party wants to try to achieve. But then provinces have a lot of leeway in deciding 
how they're going to allocate their resources. And so one of the things that we're exploring when looking at Vietnam is not simply, oh, Vietnam does well, isn't that great? But actually, and, and this is perhaps something that will be surprising to outside observers, for most Vietnamese folks, the education system is not performing well. It's performing poorly. And this is another striking aspect. Most Vietnamese people acknowledge that the country does pretty well in getting kids to school, and there's pride in the country's education system. But there's agreement across many you know, diverse sort of brands of Vietnam's society that the education system could be performing better still. And so to bring this back to decentralization, the idea is that if provinces can figure out how to allocate their resources in a way to, you know, better address problems in the education system, then, you know, the country could perhaps do still better than it has with respect to, you know, getting good education outcomes. Is there any inequality across the provinces in, you know, in any ways in terms of the amount of funding, in terms of sort of the quality and whatever way it's measured quality of education? Yeah, I mean, while there are certainly, you know, there are regions of the country, in particular the northwest, which is a mountainous area, the central highlands, which of course is mountainous. Um, and then surprisingly, even the Mekong Delta, which in income terms does better, but in education, not so good. And so there are some interesting, you know, on the one hand, you have these areas of the country that have problems with poverty. But on the other hand, you know, a, a little known secret of Vietnam's fiscal system is that actually the Mekong Delta and the Southeast get relatively less in per capita terms of central transfers from the state budget than do other regions um, of the country. Is there a reason for that? Well, I mean, it's a fascinating question, and I'm really uh, eager to, to dive into this. But, you know, the uh, the traditional heartland of the Communist Party is in the Red River Delta and Northeast uh, region. Um, so it raises interesting, you know, hypotheses, but I, I, have, I need to dig into that a bit yeah. further. <laughs> what about if people in Vietnam often, it sounds like, you know, want their education system to perform better. They're not as sort of awestruck as perhaps some foreigners are like us. What about, you know, how have the PISA results themselves been received in Vietnam? Do you know? Yeah, basically, it's a mix of pride and skepticism. You know, it's, um, and, you know, it's sort of like the Janus faced state, right? On the one hand, you have, you're looking out to the rest of the world and saying, you know, hey, look at this, this is pretty good. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, praise heaped on Vietnam. It, it went from backwater to, you know, international poster child for export economy and now achievements in education. And, you know, the important thing is to, you know, make the step of, hey, this is impressive. I mean, it is kind of impressive that this country was able to do this. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and at the same time, what's going on with the measurements? That's one question. There have been these controversies about how the how the assessment was administered. But then also, you know, what features of the education system produce good outcomes on assessments? And so, you know, one of the critiques of the education system is that it essentially is geared toward uh, helping kids to perform well on tests, but less so with respect to critical thinking skills, for example, or teamwork skills. And so there have been various efforts to try to address those deficient aspects um, of the education system. But back to the question, within Vietnam, and even, for example, 
you know, within the party, there is this sort of mix of, hey, you know, look, we're doing something good. And even the party can look to its domestic population saying, look, we're doing great. Let's be proud of our achievements as a country and see what the party can do for you and has done for Vietnam. But then on the other hand, again, even people with an education system saying, hold on a second, you know, what's actually being measured here? So that's, um, you, you have this sort of mix of viewpoints. Now, the last thing I'll say on this is that the education system as it is experienced by tens of millions of Vietnamese young people and their families is a full-on experience of getting in the doors of the education system, getting your kids through the school. There's a lot of shadow education in Vietnam, extra classes and extra teaching that takes place. There's quite a lot of pressure on children. It can be financially burdensome for families because of some features of the way in which the education system is financed, which we'll talk more about soon. And so participation in the education system is a high stakes affair because Vietnamese families rightly, you know, see the success of their children in the education system as portending, you know, uh, some sort of future um, for their families. And so, you know, what we observe is on the one hand, you have this very large and impressive bureaucracy that have these political aspects that delivers the goods in some tangible ways. But on the other hand, an, an education system whose everyday features um, can be you know, quite daunting for families and for students because of the pressure that's uh, involved in the education system and because some of the non-transparent features of the education system, which we'll again talk more about, that make getting through the education system significantly more difficult for children from lower income backgrounds. So how is education finance? I mean, it's quite interesting that on the one hand, you're saying that the central government spends quite a large amount of money on education and has a system to redistribute it to different provinces. But at the same time, you're saying that households seem to have to burden quite a large share of education costs for things like shadow education. So, you know, how how is the sort of structures of educational financing? What do they look like? I suppose the best way to begin to answer it is by saying that there's just a lot of money that is, you know, sloshing around in the system. And I think this is a vitally important feature also of Vietnam's experience that we need to bear in mind. Vietnam is a growing economy, rapidly growing, one of the most rapidly growing in the world. A lot of the things that have occurred in Vietnam, you know, have benefited from this growth. The economic growth has permitted a lot of money to go into the education system. So as one, you know, of my colleagues who studies South Africa has pointed out, you know, in, in some countries and areas in particular where there's been less growth, you don't see a, a similar dynamic. Um, you know, the promise of a job, for example, after your child gets to the education system, you know, that raises fairly uh, salient incentive to invest in education uh, that we might not observe in, in, in an area where maybe there's not such a promise of a job and you don't have the rising incomes that can be drawn upon to feed into the education system. So there is a lot of money that goes into the education system, but a really interesting thing happened on Vietnam's way to a market-based economy. And that is that at the end of the 1980s, the country's you know state socialist economy, the planned economy, kind of collapsed 
collapsed and there was an acute fiscal crisis and the education system came very close to collapse. Uh, teachers left their posts. You had declines of enrollment, for example, up, upper secondary education of 40% in some areas. Students left the, the system. Quality was affected. And this went on for a few years. And, you know, just to go back to my field work in Quangnam uh, province in central Vietnam, in 1999, I was interviewing teachers and they were recalling their experiences in the early 1990s. They didn't get paid for months. They were doing subsistence agriculture, but they were staying in their posts. Not all teachers did, but, but but many stayed. They had this spirit. In the meantime, Vietnam had to figure out, well, how are we going to do this? And so in around 1989, the government started permitting schools to collect fees. Now, socialist purists would say, oh, you know, this is an abomination. This is capitalism. You know, what kind of fake socialism is this? And it's gone on and on. And the amount of money that households are paying out of pocket has increased. And in 1992 or 1993, Communist Party recognized that this is vitally important. How do we get resources? Because, of course, the revenue mobilizing capacities of the state are still limited, right, in the early 1990s. So they came up with this brilliant, you know, terminology that you know Vietnam didn't explicitly copy China's model but the term that they used was societalization some people okay societalization not socialization even though everybody in Vietnam including English speaking people who study it use the term socialization as I used to but the appropriate term societalization is nice and vague okay what does that mean that means that the party and society together help bring resources into the education system. And they did. And it really has worked out so well that there's just been this massive influx of money into the education system. And so it's widely estimated, although no, no concrete figures are available, that 40 to 50 percent of all spending in education system is out-of-pocket private spending. Wow. Wow. It's, it's an interesting combination of both sort of the growth of the public sector but also this sort of privatization as well, where they grew simultaneously. That's right. And so effectively, Vietnam has a system of co-payments. And the good thing is there's resources and teachers can make a living, uh, not as they used to have to, you know, sell, um, you know, pho outside the school gates at 7 a.m. and then go in and teach. There's none of that anymore. They can actually make a living as Vietnam has become more, uh, you know, wealthier. But on the other hand, it's opaque. It has at times been corrupt. Uh, and, you know, you get what you pay for. And that is an interesting feature of life in Vietnam because you have the co-presence of an avowedly socialist state that does, in fact, redistribute resources across provinces. And you also have an increasingly commercialized education system in which even within a public school, you can get into different classrooms, some called high quality classrooms with different kinds of bells and whistles based on the amount of money that you pay. So, I mean, a lot of the unique features of the Vietnam case we've focused on, but I guess, you know, the final question is about, are there things from Vietnam that we could learn and sort of generalize more broadly to other contexts? The answer is yes and no. <laughs> And let me just try to summarize uh, some of the observations that we uh, can explore and that I've indeed um, set, set up for myself to explore further. Uh, and I, you know, I basically have three, I wouldn't call them, I guess, propositions um, or conjectures, really, that I'm interested in pursuing. 
And the first is the presence of the Communist Party of Vietnam. What does it mean to have this perpetual political process in the schools? Okay, It's not just about mind control. Uh, actually, Vietnam's teaching workforce is very professional. Teachers show up. Absenteeism is very low. They show up. They work with each other. They evaluate each other. They are held to account in ways that we don't see in other countries. So one question is, or one indeed conjecture is, that the presence of the Communist Party of Vietnam through its party cells and its activities represents effectively a kind of countervailing force against education sector mediocrity. It gets teachers and principals and other folks to raise their game. The second is the system of co-payments without romanticizing it, because it generates a lot of inequality and is really something to be concerned about. Nonetheless, the fact that families are paying out of pocket, I conjecture, uh, introduces a certain level of accountability. So without romanticizing it, you get what you pay for. That means millions of kids who can't pay for it are left out. And that's just brutal and totally contradicts the laudable socialist ideals that the party uh, identifies itself with. But at the same time, it probably also induces a certain amount of accountability in the education system that is absent in other countries. So again, I'm not romanticizing the market mechanism, but what I am suggesting is the fact that parents are paying out of pocket gets teachers paying more attention. Not universally by any stretch, but that's an element that I'm interested in. And then finally, and this is something that I haven't mentioned yet, but is also really important for people to understand, you know, Vietnam has had one of the most spectacularly sharp uptakes of internet activity. That's been sharp everywhere, you know, the world has gone online everywhere. But in Vietnam, people are really engaged uh, and there is almost a kind of uh, public sphere just in the education sector because it's not a country where you can have a widely broadcast opinion about everything, but there's a lot of engagement in the education uh, sector. There are lots of magazines, journals, newspapers, web pages, and there are scandals because people are paying money. So the population is really plugged into the education system in a surprising way. So another aspect that uh, I am along with uh, my colleague, uh, Zung Bik Hang, at the University of Minnesota postdoc, uh, is how um, public engagement in the education system may indeed also help accountability. So what I'm suggesting here, and this is part of the, the broader argument, and indeed this connects back with the whole RISE program's focus, is that features of Vietnam's politics, its public governance, and other features of social life in Vietnam in a sense, enhance the accountability of the education system around learning. And so the question is, well, how can we do it? Um, I, I think you know what the answer is, uh, perhaps something to think about at least, is how education systems around the world can think about encouraging elements within the education bureaucracy, within schools, uh, within society, and the way it is engaged with education, within teachers' relationships and parents that you know have the functional effect of getting people to pay more attention to learning outcomes. And again, there's no 
sense or much value in romanticizing the situation in Vietnam. But what you do have is a country that has experienced a lot of economic growth, a political leadership that is committed to expanding access to education for a variety of reasons, uh, very good learning outcomes. I want to note Vietnam does very poorly in higher education, which can be the subject of another program. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, all in all, you know, these these features have combined to produce an education system that is you know, performing well across a variety uh, of measures. And I think, you know, the central challenge for Vietnam going forward probably is to try to improve the quality of education for all Vietnamese children. And I think, you know, part of the answer to that challenge will be improving the accountability of provinces in Vietnam's decentralized system in a very specific way to education sector priorities. And the last thing I'll say is just last week, I had fascinating discussion over uh, Zoom with uh, somebody in the Ministry of Education in charge of management of information systems. And, you know, 10 years ago, they were trying to collect a lot of information, but they didn't know what to do. Now they have 31 million unique uh, ID numbers for students all sorts of information on every student, including their effects. They don't know what to do with the information yet, but they have it. They have it, and it's just impressive. So uh, there's a lot of opportunities, and I think, you know, I'm very much, you know, of course, excited about the research that, that we're doing on Vietnam, but I think there are things to learn uh, from Vietnam, even if perhaps you don't want to have, you know, a single-party political system. <laughs> well, Jonathan London, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really a pleasure pleasure to talk today. Well, it's my pleasure and I uh, look forward to seeing you again. Jonathan London is an associate professor at Leiden University. His latest RISE working paper is entitled Outlier Vietnam and the Problem of Embeddedness. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushi Guaba, Fatih Akhtas, Ing Jung Cho, Obafemi Ungunle, Dion Jiang, Joe Fei, Annabella Boteng, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Manash. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.